Well, good morning again. Great to see everyone here today. It's fantastic to see some uh, regulars and some new faces here today. Uh, we're going to do something this morning. At the end of our service, we're going to uh, do a child dedication. Several families would like to participate in that, publicly committing their children to God and committing themselves to be parents who raise their kids in a certain way. In fact, I was thinking, you know, instead of call, being called a child dedication, it almost should be called a parent commitment or something like that, because that's really what it's aimed at is more, you know, child dedication comes from the story of Samuel, um, whose mother, Hannah, cried out to God. She didn't have a child. She wanted a child. She cried out to God for a son. And she said, oh, God, if you give me a son, then I will dedicate him to you. And, and she did. She gave him uh, to be in the house of the Lord with the priest, Eli. Um, but it's different for us, obviously, isn't it? Because we don't dedicate our children and send them off somewhere, right? We don't, we don't give them to somebody else to, we don't dedicate them to God and give them to someone else. Or we don't dedicate them to God and give them to the church, Right? I'm not sure I want all your kids running around here every day on, during the week. Um, not sure how well that would work out. Uh, but no, we dedicate our children to God and we commit as parents to raise them, as Ephesians 6.4 says, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So at the end of our service this morning, several families are going to come up and they're going to do that publicly before you. But what I'd also like to do this morning, and, and we do this every once in a while, usually in tandem with the child dedication, is I want to take this morning to talk about parenting, and so address parents and talk about kids, and so uh, even probably indirectly talk about children, which is why 6 to 11-year-olds are in here this morning, okay? So I want to, I want you to hear what is going to be said today. Everyone here, if you have any kind of self-awareness, you realize you have not arrived, okay? We have not arrived yet. We have not arrived at perfection, we haven't arrived at, you know, this, this, this place of greatness where we can sit up and say, look at me, I have arrived. Uh, we need help. And perhaps foremost, we need help when it comes to parenting. I mean, there's, there's no area of life, at least my life, where I at times feel as inept as being a dad. Uh, I remember hearing uh, James Dobson once say that every parent ought to go to their oldest child sit them down, and just say, I'm sorry. Sorry for what? Pretty much everything, right? Pretty much everything. And, and, and so there, there are times I, I think that way, and then I think, well, not just my oldest, but my second and my third and my fourth and my fifth. All of them. At times, I just want to think, okay, I just owe them a big apology because I'm still a work in progress. So I don't want anyone here to feel battered today. I want you to be challenged, though, by God's word. I want you to be challenged. I want you to be redirected to God and to his ways for parenting, if you're a parent. Um, I want you to allow God to take you from wherever you are today and lead the way. I found, heard something incredibly helpful a couple of years ago. And it wasn't even in relation to parenting, but I often think, think of it in relation to parenting. And it's this, that God takes us from where we are and not where we should be. Wouldn't it be the worst news in the world if God would take us from where he thinks or we think we should be instead of where we actually happen to be? And that's what God does in his grace and his mercy. You know, there, there have been 
shocking statistics that have come out in recent years, and it's from across the board. It's from different denominations, from Assemblies of God and Southern Baptists and the Barna Group, all these, all these different groups putting out surveys and trying to get a pulse on what is happening with young people. And there's shocking things happening. Mass exodus from the church. When kids grow up and get out of high school, somewhere between 66 and 82%, that's kind of the range, I guess, of high school seniors, once they graduate from high school, between the age of 18 and 20 about, they leave the church and they don't come back. And that should shock every one of us that have little children who don't want that for them. Whatever the reasons are, and there probably are many reasons, and there's lots of debate between different schools of thought on what the reasons are, whatever they are, at the end of the day, we all should be asking, is there a strategy so that we can see something different with our kids? Is there a strategy so that we can be a church, we can be parents that see something different with our children, so that we can even, by God's grace, be used by him, along with many others, to see even the tide turn in the next generation? Well, there is. You see, God is after, what God is after is multi-generational hope and faithfulness. That's what God is after. Generation to generation to generation, hope and faithfulness. I say multi-generational because that's what our text points out to us. Psalm 78 verses 1 to 8 is all about multi-generational hope and faithfulness. Multi-generational, this is pressed time and time again, four times in these eight verses, this idea of from one generation to another, right? Verse three says, this is Asaph speaking. Asaph wrote Psalm 78. He says, I'm gonna tell you something. I'm gonna utter dark sayings. I'm gonna speak to you. And the things I'm gonna speak to you, they are things we've heard and known because our fathers told us. In verse 4, he says, and the things that we receive, we're not going to hide from their children, but we're going to tell the coming generation, the next generation, about God's glorious deeds, about his might, about the wonders that God has done. Again, in verse 5, we see the same thing, where the scripture says that God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to tell the next generation that they might know them, the children yet unborn, verse 6, and that they might arise and praise, or they might arise and tell them to their children. So he says, we've heard things from our fathers. We want to pass them down to our next, the next generation. We want even the, the generation that's unborn now to hear that they may rise up and speak these glorious things to their children. So children... Fathers, to the current generation, to children, to grandchildren, to great-grandchildren. If you have children here, or even grandchildren now, isn't that what you long for? Isn't that what you long for? Is that there would be a multi-generational work of God in your family? Now I say multi-generational hope because verse 7 in Psalm 78 tells us that's the entire purpose for which Asaph is communicating this. Right? Verse 7 says, so that they should set their hope in God. Whenever you see the word so that in the Bible, 
we should always have our ears pricked to know that God is giving us a purpose here. This is a purpose clause. So what's the multi-generational communication of truth for? So that our children and our children's children and their children and the children after them would set their hope in God. So it's multi-generational hope. And it's also multi-generational faithfulness. Verse 8. The author gives us this as a second purpose for why this truth is communicated. Verse 8 says, And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. They were unfaithful. They were rebellious. In fact, the rest of the... The rest of Psalm 78 is Asaph chronicling the unfaithfulness of Israel and yet God's faithfulness to his covenant to them to bring them back, to show mercy. So multi-generational faithfulness and hope. What is God's strategy for this? What is God's strategy so that there are generations of faithful, God-loving, obedient, joyful, hope-filled followers of Jesus Christ? Verses 4 to 7 give us God's strategy. But I want to warn you of something. This is an old strategy. Amen. Amen. (laughs) This is a really old strategy, right? King Asaph, see, we're, 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 we're 21st century Americans, right? Give me something new. But Asaph is going to give us something really old. Now, not old and worn out, Like, people have tried this, it's old and worn out, it doesn't work. No, 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 no. Old as in tried and true, and it works. And it's God's strategy. It's God's strategy. Verse 3, Asaph says these words. He says, I'm going to tell you something. I I have some news for you. I have something I want to tell you. It's things that we've heard and known. And he says, I'm going to utter dark sayings from of old. This is an old strategy, a really old strategy, but it's God's strategy, and I want God's strategy. I don't want the new strategies from the the self-help gurus. I want God's strategy for how to raise my children to love him and put their hope in him and be faithful to him so that they raise their children to love him and hope in him and be faithful to him so that they raise their children to do the same. That's what I long for. That's what I long for for my own kids as well as for yours. Now, God's strategy, I'm not really getting into the phases of a strategy quite yet. We'll get there in just a moment. But first and foremost, I must say, parents are primary in this. I hope you know that. Parents are primary. A covenant community... Asaph is not just talking to parents. He's talking to the nation of Israel. He's saying, you be faithful to the next generation. But we know from Scripture that parents are primary. The covenant community, now it's the church, is secondary. It's important, but it's secondary. Parents are primary. In other words, don't bring your kids to church and ship them to Sunday school class or Wednesday night activities and think that you're doing your job of raising your kids to hope in God. And be faithful to him. Parents are primary in this. Um, Ephesians 6.4. 
Ephesians 6, the first four or five verses, is all about children and parents and the dynamics there. And, you know, it starts off with, um, you know, children, obey your parents and the Lord, right? Parents love that verse. Like, hey, I'm going to break that out every time my child disobeys. Hey, children, this is the one thing you're called to do. So obey me, right? But later on, it says, fathers, do not drive your kids to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers and mothers, it's a primarily our task to do this. However, I would say that I long for godly men and women to speak into my kids' lives. And so I covet my relationship with so many here, and not just to go to this church, who speak into their lives, who speak God's truth, who are telling them what they need to hear and speaking truth into their lives. I want that. If you're here today and you have some gray hair and you have grown kids, don't think that this doesn't have anything to do with you either. I love um, what Psalm 71 says. And I want you, if you have some gray hair, you're a little bit older, I want you to be like the writer of Psalm 71. Listen to what he says. He says, Oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. Kid, the kids do not bother me at all, okay? So just, they, they probably bother you more than they do me, so just, it's okay. So what is God's strategy for multi-generational hope and faithfulness. I see it in, in, in Psalm 78. I'm going to add one, but there's six I want to cover today. Six phases from God for multi-generational faith and hope, uh, hope and faithfulness. Number one, parents, parents, listen to this. Parents, you need to put your confidence supremely in God and, and take your responsibility really serious. It's not either or. It is both and. It has to be both and. Right? You must put your confidence supremely in God. Psalm 127.1 says, If the Lord doesn't build the house, those who build it labor in vain. He goes on to talk about parents and children. The context is parents and children. If the Lord doesn't watch over a city, the watchmen, they're staying awake in vain. We need God. We massively need God. And we can put our confidence ultimately and supremely in Him. But take your responsibility really serious. Under God. Because He's given it to you. Right? Psalm 127. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? Apart from the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. It's not by might. It's not by power. Not by our might and our power. But it's by God's Spirit. That's what God says. So, we must put our confidence in God, rest in God, trust in God, put our children before God, and trust Him to take them and save them and make them His. And then we take our responsibility really seriously in parenting them. And how can it be both and? Well, because we know that God must work, right? And yet He commands us to do certain things. If we were to read Ephesians 6 where it says, Fathers, raise your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There, there's, we have no business reading into that. Well, I really can't do that. God must do that. God must decisively do that. 
But you, in a dependent kind of way, must also participate in doing that. God is decisive. You and I, as parents, are dependent. But our role is crucial. God must, and in a dependent way, as moms and dads, we must. We must. But not in quite the same way. Our role is dependent. God's is decisive. So how does this work? Well, there's a couple of verses in Philippians 2 that I find incredibly helpful with this whole dynamic of God must and yet we must do something too in a dependent kind of way. It's not talking about parenting, but I think it certainly applies. The passage says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, both to give you the willing and to empower you to work for his good pleasure. So, in the context of parenting, work out your parenting with fear and trembling. Because God, as a Christian parent, as a parent who's trusting in Christ, because God is at work in you to give you the resources to strengthen and empower you to work it out for his good pleasure. We work out, we, work, we act, you might say, what God works in. And for parents... Who trust in Christ, we need to know, we need to know and be convinced God is working in me to be the kind of parent he wants me to be, to raise my children, to hope in him and be faithful to him and love him and fear him their entire lives. By faith in God's all-sufficiency power, we work out, we seek to be moms and dads who raise our kids in a certain way, right? We put our confidence ultimately in God and yet we take our responsibility very seriously. Number two, parents, make God central in your home. Don't put him on the periphery. Don't put God on the outskirts. And even, I mean, I'm even talking like you have a newborn baby, you have like a one-year-old. Put God at the center, Make him supreme. I mean, he is supreme. We don't make him supreme, but recognize him as supreme. And in a sense, make him supreme in your home and in your family. Look at, verses, look at verse 4, the second part of verse 4. Well, let me just read the entire verse. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation, listen to this, the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders of He has done. God-centered, God-supreme, right? We're going to tell our kids what God has done, who God is, his mighty deeds. We're going to tell our kids God is awesome, right? In our culture, over and over again, the information comes out is we need to tell our kids how awesome they are, right? We need to tell them they're awesome. Everyone needs a participant trophy or whatever. Everyone needs to be told you're the best, Right? No, no, we want to tell our kids God is awesome. He is supreme. He is glorious. 
I love Psalm 40, verse 16, which says, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. Say that in your home. Speak that in your house. Let your kids say, let your kids hear that over and over again. Great is God. He is awesome. He is glorious. Let them hear that come from mom and dad's voice, right? Do it with a smile on your face too. And with joy in your voice. God is awesome. Don't put your kids at the center. It will be disastrous both for them and for your family. Don't put your husband or wife at the center. Put God at the center. Make God supreme in your home. At a young age and still, the truth that God is great, God is awesome, God is supreme. The reality is God is supreme, whether we recognize it or not. But as Christian parents, let's make that known in our homes. I was reading through the story, uh, the story of Jonah. Um, my younger three and I have been just going through some stories in the Bible, just some of the oldies, right, that we know. And, but just, it's so good. I just open up my Bible and read through a story and at bedtime usually. Went through the book, story of Jonah recently, and I read through it beforehand. It's just a short book. I encourage you this week to read it, to get this sense in you. But over and over again, you know, we think Jonah's a story of this disobedient prophet who just wouldn't get his act together. Read the story of Jonah with a new perspective. The story of Jonah is about God from beginning to end. God wanted to have mercy on this wicked city. God made sure that he got this disobedient prophet there. God poured out mercy on this city. I just love this story. At the very beginning, God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah's like, I ain't going there. He gets on a ship and goes the opposite direction. It says, the Lord hurled a great windstorm on the sea. The Lord did that. And this storm came up and it was, you know, the waves were coming over the side of the ship and the people were freaking out. Jonah's with all these pagan people. They're crying out to their false gods. Oh God, help us. Of course, didn't hear. And Jonah said, it's all because of me. Throw me overboard and everything will be okay. They said, we're not going to do that. He finally, they finally relented, threw him overboard. Immediately the storm stopped. And what did those pagan worshipers do? They began to worship God. Right after that, it says, God told a fish to go swallow Jonah. Isn't that interesting? When God tells a fish to do something, the fish does it. Right? Apparently. The fish swallowed Jonah. Jonah had an awakening inside the fish. Who wouldn't if you're still alive? God told the fish to vomit Jonah out on the shore. The fish did it. Jonah went to Nineveh. He preached against their wickedness. They repented. God showed mercy. It's an amazing story. God God is central in Jonah's story. Make him central in your story. In the story of your family, make him central in there as well. Number three, parents, I urge you to cultivate a love in your children for God's truth, for the revelation that a positive truth God has given us 
in the scriptures. Verse 5 says, God established, or the Lord established a testimony in Jacob, and he appointed a law in Israel. He gave a testimony. He gave a law. Now, the word law can be thought of as the first five books of the Old Testament, or more generally just as teaching. Regardless of what you, how you take that, God gave revelation about himself, and it was written down. And for us, we have the New Testament now. or we have, we have the Old and New Testament. We have the entire scriptures. God has given us revelation. And I urge you that if God is going to be supreme in your homes, that the scriptures must be highly esteemed in your homes. Right? Because the Bible is how we know God. We don't go into a closet and close our eyes and turn the lights off and say, Oh God, just show me who you are. I'm not saying we can't experience God in powerful ways when our Bibles might be closed, but we know what God is like. We know that God is glorious because of what the Bible tells us about him. And so again, if, if God is going to be central and supreme, the scriptures, the Bible must be esteemed in our homes. Isn't it stunning? If you've grown up in church Sometimes, because I, I did, I didn't always live it, but I, I grew up in church, and so sometimes I just need like, Lord, just show me how stunning the Christian life is. Isn't it amazing that the God of the universe has written a book for us? That he speaks to us? That when we want to hear the voice of God, we have a book that he's given us whereby he speaks to us and he reveals himself to us and shows us things about himself, I find that stunning, amazing. May you and I, and maybe we have, if we've lost the wonder of that, may God renew that in us. God has given us a book. I mean, if the clouds parted and we heard the audible voice from heaven we would be stunned and amazed, wouldn't we? God has given us a book where we can hear his voice by his spirit speaking through the pages of this God-breathed book. And it's authoritative, and it's powerful, and it's true. So let's highly esteem the scriptures. If I could just urge you some, just... just I could put it this way. Don't assume the Bible. Don't assume the Bible. Don't assume the Bible is true. And don't let your kids either. Don't let them just kind of roll their eyes and say, yeah, yeah, I know that's God's word. No, no, no. that's, That's assuming, right? Let them never get beyond the wonder. You never get beyond the wonder if you have. Just ask God, help me. That this book, these are words of life. D.A. Carson a preacher and writer and professor said, one generation is convinced of and believes the truth. The next generation assumes the truth. The following generation forgets the truth and denies it. You're you're never that far away from apostasy in your family. The church is never that far away from just throwing it all away. And we've seen that in, in, in some denominations in our day. 
One generation believes it. We love the truth. We, we, we're convinced of it. We're convicted about it. The next generation assumes it. Don't let your kids do this. Oh, yeah, 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 I know. That's God's word. Yeah, I, that's supposedly kind of important or something. And the next generation after that, they just, we don't need that. Don't assume the truth. Do you know that your kids pick up things from you very early in life? it's very clear, isn't it? It's very obvious that they do. Sometimes, I mean, this happens uh, more often than I'd like to admit, but I'm just like, where? Where did Silas learn this? Where did my children learn this? This kind of attitude? From me. Sometimes. Oftentimes. Our kids pick up things from us. They learn very early what is important to us by what they see us do, by what they see us spending our time doing. And so I want to encourage and challenge moms and dads here. Let your children see you reading the Bible having the Bible open, not just for show, but because you're actually reading it, right? Let them see you because you're actually doing it, kneeling over your Bible and praying. Let them see how the Bible is shaping your life and is giving shape to your family's life. Number four, parents. This is similar to number three, but there's a little difference. Parents, teach your children the story of the Bible. Teach your children the scriptures. We are commanded to teach that the positive truth we've received from God, we're commanded to teach it to our children. Verse 5, the second part, right? God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. We are commanded to teach God's revelation, God's truth to our kids. And secondarily, as a church, we're, we're called to do that with the children among us. It is not enough for you and I as moms and dads to say, see that book over there? See that book right there? That's a really important book. And it's not even enough for them to see us with the book open, right? And so that they know, well, mom and dad, they think that's a really important book. They, 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 they like that book. They read that book. But, but, but even going further, we need to open the book with our children and teach them. Have them sit down. Sometimes, it's, sometimes there's a set time and more often than not, and I think the Bible even gives us um, direction in this. It's just more in the, the rhythms of life we do this. We are charged with disseminating the truth of God's revelation to our children with the kind of diligence we see in Proverbs. Listen to Proverbs 1, verses 8 and 9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Come here, son. I want you to hear your father's instruction. And don't forsake your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland around your head and pendants for your neck. Now, I need help with this. 
But I want my teaching not just be like, kids, get over here, be quiet, listen to what I'm saying. But I want it to be like a graceful garland for their head and pendants for their neck, something that they wear and that's beautiful. That's, I heard somebody say, the point is not to get your kids to conform to the standard. When they're young enough, you can make them. The point is to get them to love the standard. The point isn't just to get the truth into your kids' ears. It's to get them to love the truth. Get them to love the things that you want to pass on to them. Proverbs 6, verses 20 to 22 says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you are awake, they will talk with you. Now, legitimately, some might say, well, legitimately or not legitimately. Some might say, though, how do I do this? I, I don't have two hours or an hour even with just an extra hour in the day to do this. Um, well, to be sure, it, it might require prioritizing. It, it might require choosing what is better and putting aside things that aren't as important for sure. But Deuteronomy chapter 6 shows us that God intends it to flow into all of life. That's why I said earlier, the rhythms of life. There are certain things we all do, right? We all go from one place to another. We all sit around a table and eat, or eat at some point. We all lie down and go to sleep. We all get up in the morning. And Deuteronomy 6 tells us, as parents, to teach our children in those very activities of life. Listen to what it says, verses 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your might. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you're sitting in your house on the couch or around the table, and, when you, and you shall talk of them when you, excuse me, and when you walk by the way, so when you're walking from one place to another, or more, more often than walking, probably driving in your car from one place to another, when you lie down, so when your children are going to sleep, you talk of the, these things to them, and when they rise up in the morning, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In the rhythms of life, We want to be disseminating and dispensing the truth and teaching our children the truth of God's word. Number five, uh, parents, lead your children to hope in God. Lead your children to hope in God. Sometimes, I was talking to someone else in the church one time, we could really relate with this. Sometimes, um, I, I feel like my, my job primarily as a parent is don't do that. Hey, stop fighting. G- get up and do what I told you to do. I mean, just kind of these commands, right? Just demanding, commanding certain things. And of course, there are times when it seems like you've got to do some heavy commanding. But our ultimate goal should be, and ASAP's ultimate purpose is that our children 
would hope in God. It's that they would put their hope in Him. That's the point, don't you think? It's hope. And not just some abstract hope, but a personal hope in a personal God. It's hope with, some, with this immovable anchor. It's a hope that, that's, that is sure and steadfast. That's what we want our kids to have, right? We don't want them just to, to stay in line when they get young and then when they get older, you know what, they'll figure it out someday. No, no, no. We want them, even as children, to put their hope in God. Ultimately, the point of kids is the glory of God. And therefore, we want to lead our children to the eternal hope that is found only in Jesus Christ. He is the hope of the world. He is the hope of your children. And ultimately, we want our kids, don't we, to put their hope in him. And not just be able to follow instructions. It's important for children to learn that. We don't see ourselves mainly as demand givers, but as shepherds, shepherding their little hearts and bringing them to God and to Christ and bringing Christ to them so that they, at at some point, when they believe in Christ themselves, might put their hope fully in Him. And honestly, this is why we teach our kids the Bible. The reason we teach our kids the Bible is because the Bible leads us to hope. There are two verses in Romans chapter 15 that taken together, they're kind of separated by some other, other verses, but taken together, it's like, wow, the whole point of the Bible is that we might hope in God. The whole po- point of the Bible is that we might put our hope in God. Listen to uh, Romans fifteen four. It says, for whatever was written in former days, so written long ago, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What was written in former times ultimately is written so that we might have hope. Verse 13 of the same chapter says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I take those two passages, put them together. Okay, the scriptures are given that we might have hope. So may the God of hope fill you with joy and hope in believing the scriptures so that you might abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the point. We don't, want, we don't just want our kids to be able to memorize Bible verses. That's, that's good. It's a great thing. I want my kids to hope in God. I want my kids to know Jesus. I want my kids to have an eternal hope that is sure and steadfast. 1 Peter chapter 1 says we're born again to a living hope according to God's great mercy. We're born again to a living hope. Later in the chapter it says that what God used to cause us to be born again is his word. The living and abiding word of God is what God used to cause us to be born again. We heard the message of the gospel. We trusted in Jesus. Born again to a living hope. Quickly, number six. Parents, work for the obedience of your children, but a certain kind of obedience. At a very young age, 
our kids just need to know flat out, if you run out in the street and a car's coming, something bad will happen, okay? But as they get older, we want a certain kind of obedience, an obedience that springs from hope, which is why the writer says this in verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of, his hand, works of God, but keep his commandments. The kind of obedience that springs from hope, that is empowered by the Spirit, not the kind of obedience that comes from fear or pride, ultimately, right? All that does is rig the hearts of our kids, and quite frankly, it rigs our own hearts, to do the right thing for all the wrong motives. If I don't, I'm going to get in trouble. If I, if I don't do this, I'm, going to be, I'm not going to be like all the other good boys and girls. That's fear and pride. We want our children ultimately to obey from hope, the hope of the gospel, the hope of the good news of Christ coming from a new heart, new affections, new loves, new desires. Okay, again, to be clear, there's a time when kids are really little that they just need to be told, you need to do what I say or else you might get really hurt. But as they get older, we want obedience that springs from hope. And this is essential to discipleship. Jesus said in Matthew 28, he said, go make disciples baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to obey all that I've commanded. So part of discipleship is we go, we tell people about Christ, we tell our children about Jesus, right? We want to bring them to hope in Christ, baptize them, and teach them obedience to Jesus. We want to raise radical, Christ-loving, obedient Spirit-empowered followers of Jesus Christ. In other words, to sum it all up, God is calling you and I to have our homes be a place where disciples are made. Disciples are made. We're like disciple-making homes. I can't help but think that there might be some here today who, um, when you think of parenting, maybe you have grown kids or maybe you still have kids in the home, but you think of parenting and it, and it brings despair and it might bring hopelessness. And I don't want you to leave that way this morning. I don't want you to leave feeling hopeless or despairing this morning. And I just want to give you two things, just in closing, and this is for all of us, but maybe specifically for some. God, I said this earlier, I think, God takes us from where we are now, not from where we think we should be. Right? We think we should be somewhere else. We should be in a better place, whether in parenting our children, in relationship with our children, all of that. God takes us right now and wants to give us hope right now. Where we are. Despair is when we think there's no hope, right? There is no hope. I'm way too far gone. I failed too long. It's too hopeless. No, God wants us to know that right now, today, 
you can be filled with hope, right? Psalm 42, Psalm 43, the psalmist is weeping. He's crying. He's saying, I despair. And then he says, why are you cast down, my soul? Why are you in despair within me? Hope in God. And so put your hope in God that he takes you right now from where you are and not from where you should be. And second, hope in this, that you serve a God who raises the dead. He raises dead marriages. He raises dead children, spiritually dead children, spiritually dead relationships. He raises dead parenting and breathes life into it. So hope in God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time in it. God, I pray as we just move on in the next part of our service this morning that you would be in it, God, that you would encourage not only the parents and children that come up here, but also everyone gathered together as they see these parents just publicly committing before you and before those gathered to be the kind of parents that we talked about this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.